right. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 2. So this evening, in case you haven't figured it out, we are continuing our journey to the book of Romans and find ourselves in the first section of the book, which again falls under the heading of condemnation. Now in it, Paul wants to prove that the whole human race apart from Jesus Christ is condemned by God, which means at one point he will judge the world. Now, this first section covers from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. But tonight, let's continue looking at chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, and a section that deals with false security. False security. Now, one of the greatest stories of false security in our nation's history happened 101 years ago. On April 10th, 1912, the Titanic made its maiden voyage. This ship was a marvel of engineering in those days. It was designed in such a way that they felt it was unsinkable. Why? Because they had designed it with nine watertight compartments in the hull so that if four of them were breached, the ship would still stay afloat. Now, you remember on the night it hit that iceberg. By the time they saw the iceberg, they tried to veer out of the way. It was too late. If they would have hit the thing head on, they probably would have survived. But because they tried to turn the ship, it grazed the iceberg and it right down the side of the hull, ripping a gash in five compartments and filling the Titanic with water where it eventually sank. Interesting story, as the passengers were boarding the Titanic, one of the ladies asked one of the captain's men, Sir, is it true that this ship is unsinkable? Famous remark, famous reply, Madam, even God himself couldn't sink this ship. So those people boarded that ship with a sense of security. It was false security. And it wasn't costing them their lives. As I said last time, people need to feel a sense of security in their lives if they're going to have peace. And I believe that everyone wants to live their life with a sense of security. As we said last time, whether it's economic security, job security, home security, national security, but also I believe that most people want spiritual security as well. This would encompass freedom from the fear of judgment because they have a sense of peace about meeting God someday. They are feeling at peace with the fact that they will never see hell, that they will be spared from eternal judgment. Now, I realize that in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years or so, many people have rejected the idea that hell is a real place, even though Jesus Christ said it was and talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. But for all the previous years of our nation's history, the preaching of hell was a mainstay in pulpits all across America. And that fear kept many people from sin and created a mindset that drove them to their knees, looking to get their lives right with God because they needed to feel a sense of security about coming judgment. As we said last time when we, when we introduced this section, this is the very issue that Paul is dealing with in this section of Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. In this section, Paul's addressing primarily the Jews, but it extends to all religious people. But Paul is addressing primarily the Jews who were the epitome of those who were religious and therefore had a sense of security and peace about coming judgment. Unfortunately, it was false security and peace based on false information. As we said last time, the Jewish people in Paul's day felt secure from God's judgment based on three things. First of all, their heritage. They were descendants of Abraham. Secondly, because God gave them the law. God wouldn't do that to unrighteous people. Therefore, that proved they would never see hell. And number three, because they were circumcised, which brought them into the covenant God made with Israel and again afforded them further protection from ever coming into God's judgment. Now, Paul knew all that. He was a rabbi and theologian. 
And so in this section, he sets about to systematically destroy this false security that the Jews had kind of barricaded themselves in. And he does so by showing them that their heritage can't save them, having the law can't save them, and that circumcision won't save them either. As we said last time, in so doing this, he dismantles. He dismantles every, not just the Jews, but every religious person's false assurance, as we're going to see, whether they be Catholic or Protestant or anyone else who is clinging to their religious system in whatever form it takes, ceremonies, rituals, whatever it might be, that gives them a sense of security, but it's a false security. And Paul wants to torpedo that because if he doesn't pry their false security away from their fingers and get them to turn to Christ in which is true security, those who are in Christ will never come into condemnation, he will say in chapter 8. If he doesn't do that, they're going to cling to their false security and ride that thing all the way into hell. So first of all, the Jews believed they were safe from judgment because of their heritage. Look at verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. As we said last week, the term Jew was kind of an umbrella term, but uh, it primarily identified them. Uh, it was their heritage. They were Jewish. That meant a lot to them. They clung to that. Of course, their heritage was based in their fact they were children of Abraham. We'll get to that. But uh, you call yourself a Jew. You rest in the law, and you make your boast in God. Yes, that God chose us. That's our heritage. He saved us out of the other nations of the world and chose us to be his own special people. Last week, we started looking at the second one. They believed they were safe from judgment because of the law. They had the law. Let's kind of pick that up in verse 18. You make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Verse 21, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, let me just stop there. This was the second basis for their false security, that they possessed and preached God's law, his word. However, as Paul points out, possessing and preaching the law does a person no good if they're not going to practice it. Paul indicts the Jews for their hypocrisy because they were guilty of committing the very sins they condemned the Gentiles for committing. He mentions stealing in verse 21, adultery, in verse 22. And then also in verse 22, he says, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And then in all these things, he says in verse 23, You make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Now, guys, I think this relates to so many who have grown up in the church, who look down on those who are unchurched. And yet they themselves are blind to their true standing before God. Many who have grown up in the church are trusting in their Christian heritage to kind of shield and protect them from the judgment coming upon the heathens. Okay, they deserve it. See, that's what the Jews would have been saying as Paul went against the pagans in chapter 1 and was calling them out for all their sins and condemning them. And I'm sure the Jews, as religious people, were saying, yeah, yeah, they deserve to go to hell. And then Paul turns the spotlight on them eventually. See, they were, they were confident because of their religion that they were going to be spared the judgment, the judgment of God. And a lot of churchgoers of Christian churches who feel the same way. But even though growing up in the church and hearing the word of God preached from week to week gives many religious churchgoers a great sense of pride, superiority, and security, over the unchurched, well, as we have said before, it brings with it a greater responsibility to obey what they hear. You're coming down on the unchurched because they're not coming to church. The problem is you are going to church and you're hearing the word of God being preached. Now you're accountable by, before God to live it. You can't plead ignorance. And in verse 21, Paul 
then basically ask them, you know, why then don't you live what you learn? Why don't you practice what you preach? Is what he's saying. He's turning the spotlight on them. Very proud. Feeling superior to the unchurched. But Paul is, rightly says, well, yeah, uh, you're better than those who don't come to church and don't hear the word, but only if you obey it. If you don't obey it, you're in worse shape than them. And he talks about stealing. Now, stealing, obviously, is taking what belongs to another. But there are different forms of stealing. Uh, some are more subtle than others. Uh, like stealing from your employer by not giving him or her your best, or coming in late, or leaving early, or taking long lunches, or sloughing off when you're supposed to be working from home. How about adultery? That's obvious. Physical adultery is something God has forbidden. But a lot of times mental adultery kind of flies under people's moral radar. I mean, if a married person is watching sexual themes in movies or on cable, or blatantly watching things on the internet with regard to pornography, lusting after others on the screen, fantasizing about having sex with them, they are guilty of committing adultery. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 8. If you look at a woman, or it could be, if you, ladies, if you look at a man, to lust after them in your heart, in the eyes of God, you've already committed adultery. See, the Jews felt, and a lot of Christians feel this way, if I don't do the physical act, I'm good. The Jews were famous for that. They thought they were righteous because they never robbed a bank, uh, had a physical affair, never murdered anybody. But Jesus takes that whole thing apart in Matthew 5. If you've lusted after a woman, in God's eyes, adultery. If you've hated somebody in your heart, in God's eyes, you've committed murder. See, God looks at the, it's not just the outward actions of our lives that God looks at, it's the inward attitudes of our hearts. Because all sin starts in the heart before it ever gets worked out into our lives. How about idolatry? I mean, understand that a person can be religious and hate idolatry. Idolatry, of course, is the worship of any other god or gods. They can be religious and hate idolatry and still profit off of it. In other words, they profit off of those who idolize sex by renting them videos. If they own a video store, that's becoming, I don't even know how many are out there anymore. Everything is live streamed now. But we'll just say, uh, anyone... Christian who would own a video store where they have adult movies in there? Aren't you making money off of somebody else's idolatry? There, some people worship sex. Uh, the pagans had gods and goddesses of sex. Aphrodite and Venus. And, you know, these were gods and, and goddesses that you, you worship them through sexual acts or orgies. There are others who, who benefit, who make money off of those who worship gambling or alcohol or anything else that is uh, that they are consumed with other than the God of the Bible. Uh, one author related this story. He said, and I quote, I heard a pastor say that he was asked to preach at a large church in another town. As the pastor of that church picked him up from the airport and was driving him to the church to speak, he noticed a number of large liquor stores in the town that they drove past. The visiting pastor commented on the size and number of, these, of those liquor stores. The pastor of the church in that town commented that the man who owned those stores went to his adult Sunday school class. When the visiting pastor asked if the man was convicted by the inconsistency of professing faith in Christ while profiting off of the sins of others, the pastor said, well, he just believes that they're going to buy their liquor from someone, so it might as well be him, end quote. Look, I have a real problem with Christians who work on gambling boats or in casinos or who work in bars or who, who own liquor stores or any company where they're selling or promoting idolatry of any kind, no matter what form it takes. You can fill in the blanks. And because of this, Paul said in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among unbelievers, because of you as it is written. What's he talking about? He's quoting Isaiah 52, verse 5. Let me read it to you out of the Amplified. Where God says, But now what have I here, says the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away for nothing? In other words, they're in captivity now. 
Maybe that will humble them. Maybe that will cause them to repent. I mean, you know, they were so bad in the land I gave them, I took them out. They're in Assyrian captivity or Babylonian captivity at this time, right? But they don't humble themselves. They don't repent. Those who rule over them howl with joy. Other leaders are now ruling over God's people. And they're having a good old. They're laughing their heads off, says the Lord. And my name continually is blasphemed all day long. So they have humbled themselves. They're just as wicked in whatever country now they're captive in as they were in Israel. And because of it, all the unbelievers, the Gentiles that they're living amongst, they're not getting a witness from God's people. They're laughing and mocking them because they're hypocrites. I'll have you turn to Ezekiel 36. This one goes along with that. Ezekiel 36, we'll read verses 18 to 20. Where God says, Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed uh, on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. So the unbelievers, the Gentiles, knew why they were there, that God had forsaken them because they were so wicked in their own land, but they haven't been humbled. They haven't exercised any contrition or repentance. They're still as wicked in these, and, and, and these Gentiles were blaspheming the name of God because of the witness of God's people. Guys, this of course applies directly to any professing Christian who's living in hypocrisy, especially I think of the, these charlatan TV preachers where they're just strutting up and down the stage uh, with their flashy, I don't know, two or $3,000 suits and $800 shoes and uh, whatever they preach, but it's, it's always a money message. And people watch that and go, they're just, these guys are hypocrites, unbelievers. They can see it. A lot of Christians are taken in by these charlatans, right? Goes, same thing goes for, for celebrity pastors, you know, who have thousands of people and, you know, they preach well. They're good communicators, telling other people how they are to live righteously and so on before God. Yet many of them, when they fall, they bring the reproach of the Gentiles or the unbelievers upon all of us. I remember back in, I think it was 88, Jim, when Jimmy Swaggart fell. He was the most watched evangelist on TV in those days. And I remember, I used to catch him once in a while, and I remember watching him do a message. Big stadium. And he had his notebook in front of him, and he systematically went through every Christian group, denouncing them, hypocrisy, Baptist, blah, 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 this and that, turn the page, Pentecostals, it's your turn. And I thought, he's really enjoying this. Who doesn't want to feel superior to everybody else? Well, it wasn't long after that they caught him coming out of a hotel with a prostitute. And then his whole ministry, he fell. You know, pride goes before a fall. When a guy with that size of a ministry falls, it makes a pretty loud thump. And the world jumps on that because they're looking for anything to call us hypocrites. This is what Paul was talking about in Jewish circles. But it applies to Christian circles as well. As Paul is saying, many unbelievers blaspheme the name of God because of the blatant hypocrisy of those whose lives don't match the faith that they claim to hold so dear. Pastor Stuart Briscoe told the story of having to deal with a fellow employee who had embezzled a large sum of money from the bank they both worked at. And uh, this is the, what he said. He said, and I quote, The reason the man embezzled the money was because he had two wives and two families he had to support. When he was apprehended and fired, he stunned everyone by saying, I'm very sorry for what I have done, and I need to know whether I should fulfill my preaching commitments on Sunday in our local church. 
clueless, doesn't even begin to describe it. Briscoe says that in the following weeks, he spent a great part of his time mending the damage done by that man's blatant inconsistency and hypocrisy. To his chagrin, he found that his fellow workers not only despised the man, but were quick to dismiss the church he belonged to as a bunch of hypocrites, the gospel he professed to believe as a lot of hogwash, and the God he claimed to serve as non-existent. Briscoe goes on, we, all, we have all unfortunately heard the name of God blasphemed by unbelievers because of the, of the immoral actions by those who claim to be believers. We may assume that because we have the truth, we're okay. But this is a dangerous presumption. God is not impressed by our claims of orthodoxy, and neither is the world. What does bless God and impact the world is an orthodoxy that produces a new life, an orthodoxy of action, end quote. A rebuke for this kind of thing, these kind of people is sprinkled throughout the New Testament. I'll just give you three quick, quick examples. You all know them. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. They talk the talk. They don't walk the walk. Luke 6.46, Jesus said, why do you call me? Speaking to a group of his disciples. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things that I tell you? You follow me, but you don't obey me. And then Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, the truest test of saving faith in a person's heart is by what they live in their lives. Do they obey God's word or not? Not perfectly. We're never going to obey God's word perfectly this side of heaven. But is obedience the general pattern of their lives? And so, guys, the Jewish people in Paul's day felt secure from God's judgment based on three primary things. Their heritage, the fact that God had given them the law, and number three, because they were circumcised. Circumcision. Look at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The purpose of circumcision was twofold. Identification and illustration. Identification, first of all, it was a sign or a symbol of the Abrahamic covenant which identified them as God's covenant people. Turn to Genesis 17. We say it again, it was a sign, circumcision was a sign or a symbol of the Abrahamic covenant, which identified them as God's covenant people. Genesis 17, starting with verse 6. He's talking to Abraham now, the Lord is. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give you to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So identification, circumcision identified them as the covenant people of God. But secondly, circumcision was for the purpose of illustration. You see, it illustrated a very important spiritual truth. That as God's covenant people, he desired them to cut away or remove from their hearts and lives all that was unclean and walk with him in purity, holiness, and obedience. God made his intent clear with regards to the true meaning behind circumcision. And he did so in various Old Testament passages. Turn to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. Because God tells them what the real purpose of circumcision was. Now let's read verses 12 through 13. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Verse 16, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. You don't have to turn to this one, but Jeremiah 4, verse 4, where God says to his people, Circumcise, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. You see, guys, they began to confuse physical circumcision with God's true intent and why he gave them the ritual of circumcision. You see, God only intended the physical act of circumcision to be an outward ritual that symbolized a very important inward spiritual reality. That was a heart that was devoted to God. But they began to look at circumcision as a, an act that actually brought them righteousness. Not symbolize righteousness, it brought them righteousness. The physical cutting away of the foreskins. In other words, in their mind, circumcision equaled salvation. And they had a long history of rabbis that taught this. Rabbi Menachem, commenting on Jewish circumcision, said, and I'm quoting him, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised Jew will see hell. End quote. Another said, Circumcision saves from hell. The Midrash says, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Now look, the rite of circumcision was a beautiful thing. It was like a wedding ring between God and the Jewish people, which spoke of love and commitment, much like an actual wedding ring does in marriage. You know, a wedding ring is a symbol of the marriage covenant. It isn't marriage, but it's a, a beautiful symbol of the marriage covenant. A married person can choose not to wear their wedding ring, or if they lose it, it doesn't make them unmarried. They're still married in the eyes of God because the symbol is not the reality. It just speaks to a deeper reality. It represents it. But even though a wedding ring is a beautiful symbol of the marriage covenant, which signifies a special relationship between a man and a woman based on, listen, commitment and fidelity, Without the commitment and fidelity, it means nothing. It means nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing because it becomes a constant reminder of the pain, shame, and betrayal of forsaken love and broken commitment. And so just as a wedding ring means, means nothing, if the commitment and loyalty that makes marriage genuine is broken, by the same token, circumcision was a sign, a symbol, of the Abrahamic covenant, and as such, it symbolized a very special relationship between God and his people Israel. In fact, he called them his wife. That's what he did there at the base of Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt and proposed this covenant. He was proposing marriage. The same commitment uh, that he was going to be their only God, and God was going to make them his own special people. And so at various places of the Old Testament, he called Israel his wife. But he went on to say that they were the adulterous wife of Jehovah because they kept going after false gods. Again, circumcision was like a wedding ring between God and his covenant people Israel, symbolizing something beautiful and special. And yet, listen, without their commitment to God, manifested by their loyalty and obedience to him, it meant nothing more than a wedding ring on the finger of an adulterer or an adulteress. Completely meaningless. And that's exactly what Paul says here in verses 25 and 6. Let's read them. He said, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as 
circumcision. Now, guys, it's possible that Paul is speaking hypothetically here. In other words, he's not suggesting that a Gentile could or even would want to keep the law. But he's, he's making a hypothetical argument. If a Gentile could keep the law and desired to keep the law, even though they were uh, uncircumcised in the eyes of God, they would be better off, they would come across in the eyes of God better than a Jew who was circumcised who didn't keep the law. That's his point. You guys think that because you're circumcised that that makes you exempt from judgment, but you don't keep the law. You know, a Gentile, if they did keep the law, being uncircumcised in the eyes of God, they'd be more righteous than you guys. However, I think it's more probable that Paul is beginning to transition into the next major section of the book of Romans, justification. First section, condemnation. Second section, justification. As he tells his readers that we aren't justified by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, climaxing in the statement, chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. There's no difference. See, Paul is laying out an argument here. When he gets to chapter 3, he's going to begin to bring it all together. All right? But he says here, look, those who have faith in Jesus Christ they are the ones who are declared righteous by God. Because there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We all get to heaven the same way through Jesus Christ. There are Christians who believe that there's two Gospels. One for Israel and one for the church. I've heard this. We just had our picnic, right, last Saturday? Several years ago, we had a picnic. And I was sitting down eating my my burger when a, a lady sat down next to me who I had never seen but she had come with a friend which is fine and she said to me pastor how many gospels are there and I thought oh here we go here we go can I just can I eat my potato salad before I get into this I said there's I knew what I was getting into I said there's one gospel oh no there's two gospels all right well what is the what is the other gospel that saves people in the old testament See, whenever I ask them, they're like, well, well, you know, the word gospel means good news. As if that answers my question. I, I understand it. But you're saying there's two gospels, two ways for people to be saved. One in the old, one in the new. What is? I know it saves people in the new, and I believe it saves people in the old. But what do you say? They, they never give me a straight answer. There's one gospel, folks. One gospel. We're all saved the same way. Jews and Gentiles. Verse 27. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code, the written law of Moses, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now, guys, Paul is going to tell us, and this is where he's going. Okay, again, he's laying out his argument. And the ultimate point he is going to be making, uh, he's going to, going to tell us that the only way a Gentile, or a Jew, but the only way a Gentile can fulfill the law, you see it there in verse 27, if he fulfills the law, the uncircumcised, the Gentile, the only way a Gentile or a Jew can fulfill the law is by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, and if we are in him, as God sees us, we have fulfilled the law as well. And so focusing on Gentiles who weren't given God's written law and weren't circumcised, but those who have put their faith in Jesus and were saved, he makes the point that a Gentile believer in Christ who is not circumcised will judge, or in other words, be a witness against a Jew who is circumcised on the day of judgment, but who didn't put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. Well, I'll have you turn to, to these. Matthew 12. Is that consistent with what the New Testament teaches? Yeah, it comes right out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That 
believing Gentiles are someday going to judge unbelieving Jews. With all their arrogance and pride and laws and rituals and everything else that made them feel they were absolutely secure and safe from God's judgment, Jesus said, actually, believing Gentiles who were never circumcised are going to judge unbelieving Jews who were circumcised. Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Well, yeah, Jonah was a reluctant prophet to say the least. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. That was the capital of Assyria. These were brutal people. They prided themselves on capturing people and brutalizing them to strike fear in others so that they wouldn't oppose the Assyrian army. I mean, they would typically take the men, cut their heads off, stick them on poles surrounding the city as a way to strike fear in the hearts. of They were brutal. And so I guess I want you to go to Nineveh, capital of Assyria, and preach before I judge them. Well, Jonah hated the Assyrians. He wanted God to wipe them out. So, he, you know, the story, he runs, right? Gets into a boat, starts to sail, and God threw a big storm that way, and finally come to find out it was Jonah's fault, and the sailors threw him overboard, swallowed by a big, uh, a, a great fish. We don't know if it was a whale or what. God prepared a submarine uh, for Jonah, swallowed. Goes to the shores of Assyria. Uh, Nineveh was located in- inland, so he, but, but he came to the shores of Assyria where they could walk then to Nineveh and the, the, the whale you know regurgitates Jonah up onto the land. Now I don't know what a guy looked like that had been in the stomach of a whale for three days. You know the gastric juices in the whale probably ate all the hair off his body, bleached it white. I mean think about that. Here's a guy that comes walking into your town, has been in a whale for three days, uh, hairless and white as a sheet, and says, repent. <laughs> I think I'd repent. But they repented. And God gave them another 100, 150 years before they got so bad again that he had to judge them. But Jesus said, look, a greater than Jonah is here among you, me. Jonah came with a message of no love, no hope, 40 days, then comes judgment, and I can't wait, you rotten sinners. That was basically his message. Jesus comes with love and compassion, and God loves you, and come to me, and I'll forgive your sins, and all this, and they didn't repent. So these Gentiles will sit in judgment of God's own Jewish people. Turn to Luke 22. And let's read verse 30 where the Lord Jesus Christ said that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, speaking to his disciples, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Unbelieving Jews who don't repent and receive Christ as their Savior are in for a horrible reality. That the ones they looked down upon because they were Gentiles outside of the covenant of God, but who accepted Christ as their Savior are the ones that are going to be enjoying the kingdom when the sons of the kingdom and daughters of the kingdom will be cast out because they, weren't, they wouldn't believe in Jesus Christ. But as one pastor put it, far from being a blessing to the Jewish people, circumcision was, was a liability in many ways. He said, and I quote, circumcision was in fact more a mark of judgment and obligation than, than of salvation and freedom. It was a constant reminder to Jews of their sinfulness and of their obligation to obey God's law. Speaking about the Judaizers who were corrupting the church by teaching that Christians were obligated to keep the Mosaic law and be circumcised, Paul wrote, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law, Galatians 5, verse 3. The author says circumcision was a mark of legal obligation. They were looking at it as some kind of a benefit. It was a liability because they knew better. Again, with knowledge comes responsibility, right? And then, guys, and I think we have enough time to get this in, Paul concludes 
with a statement that must have sent his Jewish audience into orbit. Verses 28 and 9. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, not in the written law, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, guys, Paul is going to develop his statement more in the next section, where he tells his Jewish readers that just because they're descendants of Abraham and circumcised doesn't mean they're automatically saved and going to heaven. He makes it a point to remind them that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but only Isaac was called the son of promise. In other words, saved. His point is that even though a Jew has the blood of Abraham in their veins, listen, they still need to have the faith of Abraham in their heart to be saved. And that Ishmael was both a son of Abraham and circumcised, and yet he wasn't saved. And then he points them to the reality that even Father Abraham was declared righteous by God on account of his faith. And we know that goes back to Genesis 15, verse 6. Uh, Abraham believed and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Believe equals righteousness, faith. And Paul said, look, Father Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith 14 years before God commanded him to be circumcised, which we read about in Genesis 17, verses 6 through 11. Turn to Romans 4, because Paul talks about this. Romans 4, verses 11 and 12. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, Jews, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. We'll get to that, but that's a very powerful argument. You guys think that? Because you're descendants of Abraham and you're circumcised, you'll never see judgment. You're a shoo-in to heaven. Well, Abraham had two sons. One of them was saved. The other one was a work of the flesh, Ishmael. He had Abraham's blood in his veins, and he was circumcised, but he was not saved. And by the way, Abraham believed God, and God declared him righteous, saved, 14 years before he was ever circumcised. We'll get to that. Now, guys, the question is, as we... Bring this to a close. The question is, how does this apply to us as non-Jews? Well, all we have to do is substitute the words baptism, confirmation, or church membership for circumcision and apply it to many in the church who are trusting in these things for their salvation, even as the Jews were clinging to circumcision for theirs. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a fantastic commentator. But he adapts and applies Paul's words to the Jews to the church. He said, and I quote, For he is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is that church membership that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Christian who is one inwardly, and church membership is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but God. We can easily adapt it to those in the church today even as Jew, uh, Paul directed it to the Jews. It has a wide, broad application, right? And again, guys, we could easily plug in water baptism. Understand that um, water, uh, that circumcision was a sign of the old covenant through Abraham, even as baptism was a sign or a symbol of the new covenant. And, of course, water baptism is a beautiful symbol of our relationship with Jesus. It's our wedding ring. Uh, that indicates we are married to Jesus, or at least engaged, right? It's a beautiful symbol. If the commitment, the love, and the obedience to Jesus are in place. Remember that just like circumcision didn't equal salvation, it only symbolized salvation. Water baptism isn't salvation. It only symbolizes salvation. You can be saved and not water baptized and still go to heaven, Case in point, thief on the cross. 
He accepted Christ minutes before he died. Never had a chance to be water baptized. But Jesus said, today he'll be with me in paradise. We get water baptized because it identifies us with Jesus. He told us to do it. It's a, uh, it's a uh, declaration to the world. That's why we invite friends and family over to watch people getting baptized. What are you doing? Why do you do this? Share the gospel with them. But water baptism doesn't save. There are many who believe it does. They believe in baptismal regeneration. I reject that. I reject that. It's a beautiful symbol. But it's not the reality. Now, let me read to you what J. Vernon McGee said on this. He said, This thought can be applied to our church sacraments. Water baptism is rightly a sacrament of the church if it is the outward expression of a work of God in the heart. But it is a mockery if the person who is baptized gives no evidence of salvation. This also can be said of church membership. The lives of some church members make membership a mockery, end quote. Let me just say this. Unfortunately, false security based on false information that circumcision saves, baptism saves, church membership saves, etc., is rampant in Christian church circles today. It's the very thing Paul's coming against. He wants to get people away from rituals, which some of them are beautiful. They represent a very important spiritual truth. We're not putting down circumcision. We're not putting down water baptism. Just don't elevate it to a place that God never intended these things to be. They are beautiful rituals that symbolize a spiritual reality, but people want to make the, the spiritual ritual the reality itself. That's the problem. Guys, this false information is leading millions and millions of people to judgment in our day as it has throughout the history of the church. How many Roman Catholics, that was where I was raised, think because they were water baptized, they're in, they're, that's all they need. They're, they're going to heaven. Or any other ritual. I mean, I think of, you know, Ash Wednesday, which follows Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras. <laughs> the idea is you get all your sending out before Lent starts, oh. right? Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. You know how many kids were born nine months after Fat Tuesday? <laughs> but I've seen some of our leaders on Ash Wednesday walking up to a microphone to speak with the black ashes on their foreheads, and I know they support abortion on demand up until the point of birth and now even after. They support many of the very ungodly things that God condemns. Yet they got the ashes on their forehead, right? That's all you need. A little water, a few ashes, you're good. They're in for a rude awakening if they don't come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm convinced that many of those pushing this false information, they believe it's true. I mean, we know it's false. But they believe water baptism and lighting candles and praying rosaries, all these things will equal salvation. And I'm convinced many of those pushing this false information really do have people's best interests at heart. See, they're just as deceived themselves. But listen, even though they have people's best interests at heart, when they tell them you need to be water baptized or go through this ritual or this ceremony to be saved, it's still going to lead to the eternal destruction of these folks who buy into this, no matter how sincere or well-intentioned those sharing this false information might be. Just because people mean well, that's great. I mean, I'm not saying that people who push these false doctrines are trying to get people to go to hell. They think this is the way to heaven. And they have clung to these rituals and things themselves. They are the victim of false information, which they are now passing on to others. Let me close with a true story. My pastor told this years ago, I've never forgotten it. This took place during the time in our nation's history where people got around the country by riding uh, steam-powered locomotives. That's how they traveled. And so, as the story goes, there was a blizzard. I mean, you couldn't see anything. And there was a, a train of people heading to a destination through this storm. And there was a woman, young, young mom, holding her infant daughter in her arms, and she's really scared. She was on her way to, 
to, to stay with her relatives. She had never been there before, didn't know the route, knew she was to board this train, which she did, and uh, now she's nervous because she's not sure where the stop is. So she asked the conductor, sir, I've got to get off at such and such a station. Um, will you please tell me when we're there? Because I, I don't know where I'm going. And she said, yes, of course, ma'am. Walked away. The guy across the aisle said to her, look, I travel this, all, this train all the time. He might get busy and forget. I'll tell you when you need to get off, okay? All right. So eventually the train stops, and the guy says to this young mom and her, uh, holding her baby, okay, this is your stop. And so the woman got off the train. Train continues down. About a half hour later, it stops again, and the conductor comes back and says, Where, where's the woman with her, with her child? The, and the guy says, oh, oh I, I figured you got busy, so I told her that. She was to get off the last stop. That was her stop. He said, man, you let her off in the middle of nowhere. That was a water stop. By the time they reversed the engine, the train, and came back to where she was, they found her in the snow, frozen to death, her and her baby girl. She was the victim of false information given to her by somebody who thought he was doing her a favor. Look, don't fall for the mentality well, they seem like such nice people when they knock on your door and give you a track because they, they belong to the Bible and Tract Society, Jehovah's Witnesses. A lot of people get sucked into the coast because they are nice people. I've had them over at my house talking to them, one, one African-American couple. Uh, we had a very nice talk, and they were very sweet, and they knew their doctrine, but it was false doctrine. Tried to tell them that, prayed for them after they left. I hope they've gotten saved. We're not saying that these are evil people trying to purposely mislead people down the wrong path to hell. Oftentimes, they're just as deceived as the people they're trying to help, but they're not helping them. They're hurting them, and that's why we need to know what the Bible says. You don't ever take anybody's word for what the Bible is saying through them. You go back and you check it out yourself to make sure that what they're telling you is really accurate with regard to what God has said. Amen? We'll uh, pick it up, God willing, next week. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. Your word is truth. And we are living at a time of great deception. And Lord, we must know your word now better than we've ever known it, that we might help those in darkness come into your marvelous light before it's too late. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies now in your word in this incredible book. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.